Welcome to Mudville. We've got a very special episode for you today. We welcomed back Nick Chalmers, Prospect Sauce, to discuss last week's mock draft and how it compared to the actual results. And then also, my co-host Brody was not able to join in person today, but he and his brother Morgan, who you might remember from episode two, were able to hop on a call and we had a great conversation about the recent news in the WGA SAG after strikes and we had a fun conversation about catchers. Marathon episode for you today. Thank you so much to everybody who tunes in. I think it's a really good one and I think you'll enjoy. back and we have got nick chalmers aka prospect sauce back in the not really into the studio but in the virtual studio you know you're here in our hearts um what's going on oh man it's been a huge week we had the mlb draft we did a big preview last week um i hope everybody listening to this listened to our episode last week if not certainly check that out you know you can see how some of our picks might have panned out or not we're going to talk about some of that here of course we also did a very nice first half season recap everybody check that one out right after this one i think you'll have a good time with it go do it go do it yeah it was a blast and um so was watching the draft on sunday watching all that unfold um it was suspenseful i think and um I, I think that the first half of the draft kind of shook out as expected, um, even though there were like a ton of rumors circulating <laughs> and, like the day, of like the day before, like oh, you know, pirates are gonna do this and that at number one. But I think they ended up. Uh, I think they're gonna be happy. <laughs> oh, I I absolutely do too. Those rumors were certainly interesting. Like I remember, you know, they had that that tweet where they were like the. Pirates are considering going um, under slot with, you know, yeah. uh, Max Clark, Walker Jenkins, or whoever. And um, I certainly kind of got the sense when I read that that maybe like that was them playing games to try to get Dylan Cruz or Paul Skeens to sign for a little bit lower. I think that would have been in vain. Like both of those guys had such a high floor already for the draft like if if Skeens didn't go number one he would have certainly gone number two so he wouldn't have had any reason to you know take whatever off just to be the first pick but I think they made a great selection like we said last week it was basically between the ideal hitting prospect and the ideal pitching prospect and both of us mocked Cruz number one just because we like the safety floor of the hitter as opposed to a pitcher who something could go wrong in just a single pitch for but the pirates you know a team seemingly contending they've certainly had a weird very streaky season but they're they're definitely opening a window right now and their staff isn't good and they could really use an ace like this they drafted garrett cole number one like 12 or 13 years ago at this point and um now they're doing it again with skeins and it totally fits their 
system. Like when when he was being mocked to Washington, I was kind of like, that's a little bit risky. Mm-hmm. Like that's a team that's still a few years away. They could probably use to build up that yep. core as opposed to, you know, drafting an arm right now. So I think this kind of played out well, but um, what were your thoughts on that little uh, switch up from our personal expectations at one, two there? Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't even call it a surprise. Like at the end of the day, you have the best hitting prospect in Dylan Cruz since at least Chris Bryant. And you have the best pitching prospect since at least Steven Strasburg, if not all time to me, at least in my mind, if we're talking historically, Skeens is 1A and 1B of all time best pitching prospects coming out of the draft right there with Strasburg. So you can't, yeah, I, I think so. I mean, just like we talked about it last week, but just to reiterate, I mean, it's it's 98 to 101. Uh, with excellent command and a true plus slider, if not better, with a changeup that flashes above average, if not plus. I mean, he pulled that out of his of his hat in the College World Series, and it was a fantastic offering. So it could be it could be three plus or better offerings. It could be high nineties with command. The fastball shape, you know, it's more of a it's not a true sinker, but it's it's not one of those sexy like flat. Taj Bradley or Bryce Miller fastballs that like everyone loves these days, sure. but it's not terrible. Um, and considering the velocity and the command, it doesn't even matter in my opinion. So, I mean, I- I'm totally on board. I totally agree with you. I think that considering the pirates do have a strong farm system, they're starting to graduate. Some of these guys, Kendra Davis, Nick Gonzalez, they're starting to bring these guys up to contend with the big league pieces that they have. Skeens is a guy who can slide into that rotation. I think he's going to be up with the club sometime next year um, and just going to be a mainstay. And eventually he should be a true ace if, if health goes his way. So I like it. It was a, I was a little bit surprised, I guess, but like you can't go wrong, man. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I was like at the point where I was I was starting to buy in on the hype that they were going to take Wyatt Langford instead and like shave a few million off or, or not a few million, but a few hundred thousand. But that of course did not end up happening. Um, and like something with the, the pirates organizationally in the past, like few years is they definitely had a number of pitching prospects who didn't really pan out. Like recently, um, Rowanzi, Contreras has like you know he's flashed that potential for what he can do but ultimately he hasn't really gone much past his floor and I think that has kind of been the case with a lot of Pittsburgh Pirates for a while like we're just now starting to see Mitch Keller take steps towards becoming an ace but for a long time you know he was a disaster he was getting hit all over the place you know their rotation for so long has been so terrible and in the past like year or so like you were saying with some of these guys that they called up henry davis gonzalez coming up um and you know o'neill cruz of course last year he was off to a great start this year before the the injury they've had a lot of hitting prospects who have who are seemingly developing at the rate or even faster or more efficiently than they were hoping but they haven't really seen that on the other side of the ball at all so i think Paul Skeens is a perfect 
selection there for that reason just because you know like like we're saying this isn't a guy with stuff that we're currently dreaming on like this is a guy who has it right now like if he hadn't just thrown a million pitches in the college world series like they could probably have him in their rotation this year like right now he could be he could be getting outs at least and like you said that is something that doesn't come out of the draft very often at all of course dylan cruz is also not somebody who comes out of the draft like that at all but i can absolutely understand why the pirates would say right now give us the most can't miss pitching prospect in a long time and i think that might hopefully for them be one of the final pieces that they need to really contend in that uh, nl central um what do you think of cruz I mean, it was the obvious choice, right? Like, oh, yeah. Washington was kind of in the best position in the whole draft. Like, I totally agree. Take the LSU guy, take the LSU guy who falls, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you don't really have to think about it. You know, no pressure. Um, I mean, I like it, right? Like, the Nationals, they're at least three or to five years away from their contention window, right? I mean, yeah, it, they're definitely. quite a bit quite a bit off. Um they they need pitching. Like if we're we talked about this last week, but if they're if they were drafting for team need, you you would rather have schemes fall to you. But like that's not how you should be drafting in the MLB draft, right? There's so much variance that can happen between the draft and when these guys ultimately get called up to the big leagues and ultimately hit their ceilings um, and their peaks, maybe like three or four years after the call up. So there's a lot. There's a big time time window that you know a lot of things can change, whether it's injury performance. Um, so you don't necessarily care about the fact that, you know, the Nationals have guys like Robert Hassel and James Wood already occupying the top of their system. And, and you know, James Wood is a fantastic prospect. I think he's a top 10 prospect, arguably top five. They got him in the Juan Soto trade. I think Hassel um, was another guy who came over in the Juan Soto trade. He's kind of his stock has kind of faltered a little bit. Um, yeah, but dude. I think he could still be a solid. He could still be solid. Like he could be a a guy like that. You know, you plug in as you know your third or fourth outfielder, maybe a bench guy. Who knows? I mean, I think he could still be productive. So, Dylan Cruz, he fits into that timeline. Um, the Nationals, they still need pitching. They seem like they're one of those teams, one of those organizations that just cannot, for the life of them, develop any guys. Like the Dodgers and the Rays and the, and the Astros seem to like churn these pitchers like out of their ass every year um some other teams like the yankees tend to you know turn them out at a decent rate too the nationals just never have these guys i mean so <laughs> dylan cruz i i think it was the obvious pick i do think though that there's a long road ahead for the, the nationals and i don't really see that this draft i don't think this is the draft that gets them it doesn't accelerate their timeline. It's still a four or five year window, but I think Cruz is going to slot in there. Um, he should be, you know, an absolute staple for that lineup for a long, long time. Definitely. I, I, I think it's certainly necessary to uh, also clarify that James Wood and Cruz are on a much, much higher tier tier than uh, Robert Hassel, but I totally no agree doubt. that I think he's going to be a solid. <laughs> no doubt outfield prospect but um you know in terms of like what what you can dream on i think i'm pretty confident in saying that wood and Cruz are both at the very top of my list of guys that i am pretty certain are going to be superstars in baseball um and with hassle it's it's probably more like a 
15-15 type of guy that, you know, might play decent defense. Um, for sure. For sure. Yeah. But you need those guys, though. Oh, you absolutely need those guys. Yeah. Um, And I guess the only reason that I say that in a more critical context about Hassel is because, you know, he was seen like last year as the number two fantasy prospect for one. But um, people were dreaming on him and they were thinking like, you know, he was in the Juan Soto trade. But there was a time where people could think that he would have been a potential uh, headliner for a deal like that. And uh it, it seemed like he was more of a, you know, James Wood was the piece in that trade. And then Susana and Hassel were kind of more of, you know, we, we think these guys can be good, but yeah. Whatever. I mean, <laughs> it, generally speaking, you know, Wood top 10 Cruz top 10 right away of mm-hmm. overall prospects. Hassel probably just outside the top 100, somewhere in that 100 like, to 150 range. Yeah, I was, um, was going to say 125. Yeah. yeah, but like development's not linear, right? So with all these guys, you know, they're going to face hurdles. They're going to face roadblocks. Even the best of the best, it just happens. Uh, I mean, look at, go back to the Pirates, look at Nick Gonzalez and Henry Davis, two guys contributing for the big league club this year. Last year at this time, they were both struggling in the upper levels of the minors. Um, their stock was taking a big hit. Um, Davis struggled behind the plate defensively. They, they're kind of moving him off catcher now, um, to really focus on that bat. And Nick Gonzalez was running strikeout rates near 30%. Um, so, and not to say that these guys are out of the woods by any means, but development isn't linear. Um, anything can happen. So I think Cruz just is, he's safer than the average prospect, which you like. And it's not to say that he's 100% a slam dunk, but he feels like a rock for that organization. Definitely. Pretty big surprise, I thought, at number three with Max Clark, the high school bat, going to the Detroit Tigers. I thought that I was pretty certain they were going to take Wyatt Langford, you know, after their past few years of having a bunch of prospects not really pan out on the offensive side of the ball especially and really just having miserable vibes in Detroit baseball wise like it seemed like that was as big of a can't miss pick as they could have gotten that really fell into their lap and I love Max Clark of course but it it surprised me that they passed on Wyatt Langford for him did you agree with that yes but in the moment, definitely. I thought it was going to be Wyatt Langford. I was, this was a, a surprise. It wasn't a shock, right? They didn't go like left field. Um, I was surprised marinating in on it over the last week or so. I, I actually think I like it. Like, I don't, I don't know if I would have taken Clark over Langford if I were the Tigers, but I, I do like it. I do like the pick quite a bit. I, I do talk about timelines. Um, I think Clark fits their timeline perfectly. This is another organization that, in my opinion, is three to five years out. Max Clark is the toolsiest prospect in this draft. I mean, it's a potential gold glove center fielder. It's a potential double plus runner. Um, It's a guy with a really great field to hit as well. You usually don't see those types of tools with the field to hit. I think the power from the left-hand side is going to come, especially to the pull side. Uh, I don't know if it's going to be light tower power like Wyatt Langford, you know, 30-plus bombs, but I think it's going to be 20 if he reaches the ceiling. Um, this could be a perennial all-star. This could – Max Clark could – he could have a higher ceiling than Wyatt Langford. I, I, I think he probably does. 
because of that elite defense. Um, so you're kind of dreaming on the tools with Clark and the, the Tigers, you know, they, they kind of need that. I think, um, I, I think this is a, an organization with a lack of star power. Um, they have solid pieces. They have Riley green. They have Torkelson who were, you know, superstar prospects that haven't quite lived up to it, but they seem, they still seem like they're on track to be solid big leaguers. Um, but I think Max Clark represents true upside, um, true superstar upside. Not that Wyatt Langford doesn't, but hey, I mean, it's all about context, right? Because the second round pick for the Tigers was Kevin McGonigal. And that's a guy I talked about last week. And Kevin McGonigal is a fantastic hitter. He's a fantastic high school hitter, a really good field to hit, smaller guy, shortstop, could be a second baseman. But you pair those two together and maybe you, you save a little bit of money with Clark. Um, it makes sense. The, the bigger picture of the draft made sense for the Tigers. actually like what they did a lot. Clark could certainly bring a sense of uh, energy to Detroit that has not been seen in quite a long time. Speaking of that light tower, 30-plus home run power from Wyatt Langford, that's now going to be slotting into a very terrifying Texas Rangers lineup. This, I think, is one of the biggest winners of the draft, I think, is Wyatt Langford, because in, instead of slotting into that Detroit questionable system, weak lineup, and pitcher's ballpark, now he's kind of getting the opposite. Like, not to say Texas is a super strong hitter's park, but they're certainly a much better organization, and they already have one of the best lineups in baseball. Like, he's going to be fighting for a spot, certainly, but, like, you think that they could take his immense upside, maybe get tweak a few things and the swing for, like, the rest of this season, maybe send him to the Arizona Fall League or something, and then have him come back, mm-hmm. and then they got to take a serious look at him in spring training next year. But like you got to think that both Wyatt Langford and the Texas Rangers are pretty thrilled with this this uh, pairing. Yeah, <laughs> you said it. It's it's a dream pairing. I mean, I, I really do think the top five shook out in a way that makes sense for every organization. Um, it just feels right, you know. Like Max Clark to the Tigers, bigger, you know, longer timeline, not competing maybe a little bit more upside down the road as a center fielder. Why Langford to the Rangers in an organization that is primed to win, um, that has the pieces at the big league level right now, that's contending right now. You said it. They're going to take a long look at him in spring training. I think if I had to predict, if I had to pick one guy who's to the ma- majors fastest they, from this draft class, this whole draft class, I'm picking Wyatt Langford. I think he's a guy who could start, you know, next year at, double A or triple A and get called up to the majors on the first um, injury that happens. The first IL stint that happens, it could be April, it could be May um, for a call up next year for Langford. I really think that his bat is ready. Um, not that Cruz's isn't right. Um, it's of just course. a different kind of organizational context no, there. Yeah. And I, I yeah, I, it's, <laughs> it's going to be, it's going to be awesome. Um, I wonder though, if, this now kind of this pick of Wyatt Langford maybe frees up some trade capital for the Rangers. Um, they have a guy, Evan Carter, who is an outfielder. Not that you can ever have enough prospect depth, right? Cause injuries happen, guys falter, but they have a guy, Evan Carter, who's a top 20 prospect in his own right. 
coming close to the majors. He's in double A right now, doing really well. I'm wondering if maybe they dangle Evan Carter. Maybe they dangle a Luis Angel Acuna, who's another guy that's doing really well, probably about a top 50 prospect. Sebastian um, Walcott, really maybe? Spl- yeah. Maybe oh, Walcott. Man, I love Walcott. We just maybe saw Walcott, a maybe. Dominican Summer League prospect traded like last week. I mean, who knows? But yeah, we did. That'd be yeah. wild. Um, yeah, it, I mean, yeah. as much as you love prospect capital and having these these young guys to dream on, you like championships a whole lot more. And, oh yeah, uh, absolutely. <laughs> the Rangers have a very good <laughs> chance at one right now. You could you could easily make the argument that they are the AL favorites and. Like they just drafted a guy who I could see hitting thirty plus home runs, like God next year, which is crazy yeah. to think about. Very exciting times in Texas. Um, really and then is. at five, the Twins did end up picking Walker Jenkins. There had been a lot of rumors that they wouldn't have taken him had he fallen there, and that they were looking at guys like Jacob Gonzalez. But that did not end up being the case. I think they made the correct pick here. Um, Walker Jenkins is a guy, again, you know, with huge upside. Like, we, we talked about all these guys last week, but any of these first five picks could have been a number one selection in a weaker class or even a regular class. Um, so really, these five teams totally lucked out. Um, and then... At number six, I think we have the first pick of the draft where that just kind of made me say, ugh. Um, and that yeah. was the A's going pop, probably under slot with Grand Canyon shortstop Jacob Wilson, who is a great bat-to-ball guy, but with very limited power. Um, this is certainly not an upside pick for a franchise that doesn't have much upside and doesn't even seem to want much upside right now um i just find this quite depressing (laughs) but um do you have any thoughts about either walker jenkins or jacob wilson going to either of these organizations yeah i guess quick thoughts um jenkins I'm, i'm super thrilled for the twins i'm glad they didn't get cute you're right there were rumors i i i was seeing on twitter of them being linked to a college bat like Wilson or Gonzalez, they always seem to prefer that demographic in the draft, which I get. They're, they're safer than, than the prep bats for sure. Um, but Jenkins is the elite talent. There's a clear five player tier in this draft. Um, you got to take the upside. You got to swing for the fences. This is an organization that they're, they're always perpetually competing, but perpetually not quite good enough to, to fully compete, it seems. Um, so, and I think part of that is because they do prefer the safer demographics. They prefer to, to take, um, guys like Brooks Lee in the draft. They, they, they seem to always gravitate toward, um, safety rather than upside. So I'm, I'm happy to see them get a guy like Walker Jenkins with that elite ceiling. He could be a top 10 prospect in the game in a couple of years easily. And he could be in three, four years time. He could be one of the best young players in the game. So I'm hyped for them. Um, Jacob Wilson, as you said, yeah, it's it's cringe. <laughs> it's not great. Um, uh, I'm not, I wasn't shocked though. Like after after pick five at pick six for the A's, they could have gone with like a dozen different players. I wouldn't have been surprised with literally a dozen different guys with yep. the pick. Um, so I wasn't surprised. Yeah, I wasn't surprised, but there is no upside. I mean, 
Jacob Wilson, I'm not going to hate on the guy. He does what he does well, but like you're talking about a ceiling that's similar to like Jeff McNeil, I think, oh, um, boy. which is a, a, a solid player, but not prob- probably not a guy you want to take at six, especially as an organization that's, you know, really in need of um, big time talent. <laughs> yeah, certainly. Um, so then to round out the top 10, uh, at seven, we had Rat Louder out of Wake Forest going to the Reds. I actually got that one right. Uh, Blake Mitchell, the high school catcher, went to Kansas City. Chase Dolander uh, went to Colorado. I think you nailed that one. And then uh, Noble Meyer, out another, the first uh, high school arm out of the draft, went to the Miami Marlins, which made me very happy but uh we'll start with uh rhett louder and chase dolander there uh two college arms you know probably the consensus two two and three college arms uh coming into this draft and both of them land in a pretty brutal run environments um so how do you feel about these guys panning out in the cincinnati and colorado organizations respectively well um you're right by far the two worst run environments in in major league baseball two organizations though that develop pitching um very differently um i i really like the red landing spot for louder um admittedly i'm not the highest on louder currently i think he's more of a safety over ceiling kind of arm, but I thought the same thing about Nicola Dolo coming out of college in 2019. Um, the Reds, they worked their magic on guys. I, I don't, I think that, you know, Rhett Lauder, he could come up to the bigs in a year's time and be a number four starter. Um, or the Reds could take their time with him and develop him and iron out a really nice slider to go with that really great changeup that Rhett Lauder possesses. Um, maybe give his fastball some more life and carry at the top of the zone that it currently lacks. Um, he's such a talented arm in that he's, he's almost like a, a savant where he's able to kind of pick up things quickly. He's able to learn. He's able to, this has a really great feel for pitching. Um, the narrative with louder was that he's a safety arm and that's true. And that's why I wasn't the highest, but I think that in this landing spot in, in Cincinnati, they could really turn him into something. I'm really excited about that. Um, conversely, with Dolander <laughs> in Colorado, uh, not as thrilled to be to be honest. Um, this is an org that has taken um, Gabriel Hughes and um, blanking on another guy. They've 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 taken some guys. They've taken some pitching in the first round, in the last couple of drafts. It hasn't panned out they don't develop arms well it is a bad environment it's kind of the double whammy they don't really have anything going for them in that regard um yeah i, I like Del- i like dolander's upside i like the talent despite the struggles this year at tennessee um it, it was kind of i was kind of disappointed to see him land in colorado me too um i think it was it was definitely uh it was pretty certain i would say that one of these college arms was going to end up there like one of them was going to be sacrificed to the colorado yeah elevation (laughs) like it's just gonna happen at this point i mean you know gabriel hughes like last year as soon as you got that you were like well 
there goes his fantasy value. I don't want to say career. Yeah. That feels a little harsh, but um, <laughs> certainly yeah, is yeah. certainly a guy with like a 3.3 ERA elsewhere is going to be at like 3.8 or 3.9 maybe in Colorado. Yeah. Like it's just going to be inflated. There's there's absolutely nothing you can do about it. And uh, I said last week that you were you, they they should go for like sinker ballers or for like ground ball guys guys with good stuff and so that I had projected uh Hurston Waldrop to them but he fell all the way to 24 to the Braves we'll get there in a, a little bit but first uh the Kansas City Royals with Blake Mitchell this seems like a very risky pick I think um yeah. especially for an organization that can't afford to miss on a prospect right now like to take a high school catcher feels very ballsy um what do you think about that yeah um they do this the royals do this um a couple years ago they took frank mazzucato um a lefty pitcher uh out of connecticut um a high school pitcher um where he was seen as more of a back end of the first round early second type um, they do this with their top ten picks all the time. Uh, they haven't had a lot of success. It's it's puzzling. You're right. Catchers, especially prep prep catchers, are very risky. Um, they're they're the second riskiest demographic in the draft behind high school pitchers. Um, they don't pan out often. Um, so to take a guy like that in the top ten is pretty pretty head scratching, um, especially when you consider the Guardians. Um, 20 15 to 20 picks later in the, in the early 20s taking ralphie Velasquez, another prep catcher who i kind of like more i actually like him quite a bit more than blake mitchell um i, th- I think there's a better uh, chance that ralphie is able to to hit successfully at the, at the plate um yeah not a fan <laughs> not a fan <laughs> oh boy well the other high school pick to round out the top 10 Noble Meyer to the Miami Marlins. I absolutely love this. You know, Noble Meyer, this is a guy, high school arm, kid was born in 2005, and it's a name that, like, I've known for a while, which is incredibly impressive for a player of that age. Like, usually you don't really hear too much about these guys until, you know, they make an impact or something. But, like, this is a guy who pitched in the uh, All-American game. Like, he's had hype for a while. And when I was watching the draft and they started interviewing him, like, this kid is talking like Rain Man. Like, he's a fucking genius. Oh, my God. Like, <laughs> And this is a perfect landing spot for him because this is a team that develops pitching arguably better than any other organization in the league. Like, look at what they're doing with Yuri Perez right now. And this is a guy, Noble Meyer, another young kid like that, six foot five. Three plus pitches, which is insane again for an eighteen-year-old kid. Touches a hundred, like it. It really feels like it could be Yuri Noble Meyer, like that. That could be an elite one-two for like a decade. And you know, like yeah. we always say, high school pitchers are by far the most volatile, the most risky. Like they, uh, they carry the most potential disastrous outcomes for sure but for this organization and for this particular player i just love this pick at 10 yeah no me too i like it i like it a lot um the only knock as you said the risk i guess if you want to get nitpicky um 
they need position players. But again, we, we say it all the time. We don't we don't draft for, for need at the big league level. We draft for uh, three, four, five, et cetera, years down the line. Um, yeah, I mean, excellent developmental organization when it comes to pitching. Noble Meyer is, in my opinion, um, a top 10 talent in this draft. So I think it makes all the sense in the world. And I'm glad that they swung for the fences with this draft. I think that the Marlins have squandered their first round picks um, recently uh, with relatively safe college bats that ended up not being so safe after all. I mean, Jacob Berry last year, uh, I was not a fan at all of that pick at number six. Um, and he has had a disastrous start to his professional career. Um, JJ Blade was another top five pick back in 2019 who they ended up trading to Oakland this offseason and looks like, you know, a fourth outfielder at best. Like so I, th- I think it, I think it's good. I, right there. Or yeah. Like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I like it. I'm a, I'm a fan. Um, makes a lot of sense. You, you maybe you would have liked to see a position player here, but I mean, the talent, the organizational context, it's all there. I absolutely love it. Um, 11 through 15, we've got all five college bats. Uh, we had my namesake, Nolan Chanel, uh, went 11th to the Los Angeles Angels. That's a very uh, interesting pick. You and I both correctly predicted uh, Tommy Troy going number 12 to Arizona Diamondbacks. And then the Cubs, right after that, took a very similar player in Matt Shaw. And then... <laughs> this one hurt me. Boston got Kyle Teal all the way down at number 14, which is just going to bring so many headaches. Uh, <laughs> and then at number 15, um, the Chicago White Sox surprised me personally a little bit and took Jacob Gonzalez, the shortstop out of Ole Miss. And I actually like that pick a, a little bit more than I was expecting to, but I'll get into that yeah. in a second. Are, are there any of these five guys who particularly stand out to you who you're excited about i love matt shaw um i think i mocked him six to oakland just because i like him so much and i think he would have been a great fit especially considering they took jacob wilson um so i love matt shaw i think it's an excellent landing spot um in chicago i think he's a sneaky upside college bat here that can run hit hit for power and probably play a solid second base down the line. I really like Tommy Troy as well. He's a similar profile. I think there maybe is a tish less in-game power from Troy, but you think about a guy who could be relatively quick to the bigs and slot in in that young core that they're building in Arizona. Tommy Troy's that guy. It was a great pick. Agreed. Kyle Teal. Um, I thought he was a top 10 talent, you know, not for fantasy by any means because he's a catcher, but in real life, you know, the athleticism behind the plate, the, the, the beautiful swing from the left side, the, the field to hit, the field to hit for power, it's all there. Um, this is, you know, potential franchise backstop for Boston, unfortunately, <laughs> for Yankees fans. Um, your namesake, Shanwell. Um, I like Shanwell. I, I think I had a mock to the Brewers at pick 18. Um, I, I don't know about correct. pick 11. It's a little high. It's a little high for a first baseman. They just don't have the defensive value that, um, you know, up the middle players have. Shanwell, it's a great field to hit. I think he does have above average power eventually. 
it's not like insane power. Like this isn't Matt Olson. This is more um, like Josh Naylor, I think, which is a good player. But again, it's pick 11. It was a little high for me, um, but it's not a surprising pick from the Angels. They're always looking for guys who are quick to the big leagues. And I think Shanwell could be that. Yeah, when the Red Sox picked Kyle Teal, like as soon as they were up, I knew he was going to them. And like I, I mocked them at number eight to Kansas City, who did end up taking a catcher, just one who's mm. younger and worse, of course. Um, <laughs> which and that doesn't really make any sense. Like I, I, I think I wish Kansas City had just taken. Kyle Teal, and not so I look yeah. smart, but so that the Red Sox didn't get this great. <laughs> um, and then Jacob Gonzalez, like I said last week that I wasn't very high on this guy, but 15 to the White Sox, I actually like this, just because this is a team, an organization that has had a very, very chaotic past five years. They have had so many injuries. They have had guys who haven't panned out guys who have and then immediately went down for the year uh they hired a decrepit moron (laughs) as their manager for like two (laughs) years um and then tanked their franchise essentially they've had an incredibly disappointing season now three years in a row uh they did make the playoffs in 2021 but they got bounced instantly disappointed last year and it just everything's fallen off the wagon for him this year. And I think Jacob Gonzalez is a guy who's going to bring some sort of sense of stability. Like this is a guy who should stick it short. He'll have a solid bat. Like there's not a ton of upside there in the bat, but like they might not really need that. Like most of their best players are still super young and should still pan out. Like there's no reason that, this White Sox team couldn't have contended this year. Like there, there's no reason they can't come back and have a great second half. Not that I think that is actually going to happen anymore, but like, there's no reason that they can't be competing next year. And there's no reason that Jacob Gonzalez couldn't maybe be a part of that down the stretch. And then moving forward could provide that sense of stability, that solid defense. You know, I, they had him, some drafts in the like top 10 and I didn't really like that, but I do kind of like this at number 15 for the Chicago white yeah. Sox. Um, totally agree. And then right after that, we've got pick 16, uh, Bryce Eldridge two way pota- player potentially, uh, went to the San Francisco giants second year in a row that they've taken a guy like that in the first round last year, they picked Reggie Crawford, also a two-way player. Um, I don't think that Eldridge is going to be a two-way guy for San Francisco. He's just like not that good of a pitcher. Um, and for an offensive landing spot, like he's a left-handed bat, which just makes me not really like that for him. Like right center field in San Francisco is like 430 feet or something ridiculously stupid. Like, I, I don't understand why their right center field looks like that. And for a guy like this, that's going to be hell for him. Like, he's going to be experiencing what Ryan Mountcastle is ever since they moved the wall back in Baltimore. Like, if, if he pans out, of course. But that's just the first thought that I have about a left-handed slugger going to San Francisco. Um, yeah. 
Do you have any thoughts on yeah. on Eldridge? Yeah, lukewarm on the pick itself. Not a big Eldridge guy uh, for all the reasons you said. Um, but again, I'll, when it comes to the draft and the bonus pool system, you, you need to take future you know picks in the second, third, fourth, etc. rounds um, into consideration. And I really like their second round pick. Um, I want to shout out Walker Martin. Um, I thought he was a top 20 to 25 talent in this draft. He's a high school shortstop, super athletic, big power, really good field to hit, had one of the best high school seasons in the country this year. Uh, they were able to get him in the 40s, and I think that is partially because they they gave uh, they gave Eldridge a deal at 16. <laughs> so I, I don't hate it when you take that into account. Sure. All right, that, that's fair. You kind of sold me. Um, I think all five of the American League East teams kind of nailed their picks, but we've got three of those four coming up right now. Uh, at pick 17, the uh, Baltimore Orioles took Enrique Bradfield Jr., which I think could be a perfect fit because that's a team that is just oozing with young talent. Like, they are turning college bats high school bats whatever they are turning all of them into projectable big leaguers who look like they're going to be making an impact for a very long time and when you take bradfield into that sort of context like this is a guy whose offensive game is a little bit questionable but whose defense and speed are like out of this world that could be potentially be a perfect fit and with that development system if they can get like anything out of his bat this could be a potential like mvp candidate you know if, if everything goes well for him yeah it could be um there is that upside I, I don't know if i'd go that far but there definitely is all-star upside i'm being um, a little no doubt about it but <laughs> that's okay i mean you know more importantly though there's a high floor like this is a gold glove center fielder this is a guy who is going to swipe you 40 bags be a threat in the base paths. He's not the best hitter. Um, it's not like it's a, you know, double plus hit tool, um, Kenny Lofton type of profile. It's more of like an average to above average hit tool, but it's okay. And he does everything else so well. Um, there's not a lot of power in his game by any means, but the peripheral skills, the, the defense, the speed, um, it's a plug and play guy in center field. Uh, it could be Kevin Kiermeyer for them for the next decade. Absolutely. Um, and then following him, we've got four picks coming up that I absolutely love. At 18, we had uh, Wake Forest third baseman Brock Wilkin go to the Milwaukee Brewers. Those two uh, AL East picks I just mentioned, the Tampa Bay Rays at 19 took Braden Taylor, shortstop out of TCU. At 20, the Toronto Blue Jays took Arjun Nimala, the uh, shortstop out of Strawberry Crest High School in Florida. Ever since I read that, I have strawberry fields forever going through my head. Um, (laughs) At 21, we've got the college outfielder Chase Davis going to St. Louis, which could be potentially boom pick there, but I'll I'll save that for a little bit. Um, Yeah, actually, those are the those four picks right there that um, I think are all fantastic, but I'll, I'll kind of let you go in in order yeah. there. If you'd like, you have anything on uh, Wilkin and Taylor first, and then maybe after on the other. Yeah. Two? 
I mean, I'm I'm big on Wilkin. I'm big on Chase Davis. Um, go listen to the first episode if you want me to uh, gush over those guys because I absolutely love them. Um, Arjun Damala is a risky demographic. He's a high school shortstop who does have the hit tool, swing and miss type of concerns, but it's potentially massive power. Um, he's gotten like Alfonso Soriano comparisons. <laughs> so I like the upside play here for uh, Tam- for um, Toronto. And, and Braden Taylor uh, to Tampa Bay. So Tampa Bay is like that organization, right, that when they make a move, you kind of start second-guessing uh, what you think about the player, right? Um, they're, they're always just seemingly ahead of the curve. And I, I wasn't the highest on Braden Taylor going into the draft. Um, I've been looking into it. He he does something really well he's he he can he makes consistently good contact at a premium launch angle like he doesn't have the most raw power in the world but he's able to lift the ball to his mostly to his pull side um and he can make some really consistently hard contact when he does that that leads to a lot of extra base hits it kind of reminds me of a left-handed version of a guy they have isak paredes right now is having a fantastic year paredes is a really good hitter just like taylor um, he doesn't have the best raw power in the world, but man, he just sprays like dead pull home runs. His swing is just optimized for extra base hits to the pull side. And I think that Tampa could develop Braden Taylor into a similar kind of player. I think they're going to get every last drop of value out of him because they always do. Yep. Um, <laughs> I saw somebody this week, I can't quite remember who it was, say Namala could potentially have even more upside than like some of the top five picks. And that seemed kind of crazy to me, but I wanted to ask you like a, what, what you thought about that, like in a dream scenario for Arjun Namala, where absolutely everything clicks and he gets into one of the best lineups in baseball and like becomes a superstar. Do you think that he could be on that tier with like Cruz Langford Clark and, Jenkins or do you think there there's not really much much weight to that uh there's some weight I I don't know if I would go um as much as the top five he's definitely top 10 in, in this draft in terms of upsides there, there's some guys drafted later in the the first round into the second like like Walker uh Walker Martin that we talked about Sammy Stafford even like a Ty Pete and a Johnny Formello who were drafted uh, later in the first to the Mariners, They those guys have huge upside too with a ton of risk. Um, but Namala's up there. Um, I wouldn't say his ultimate ceiling, though, is higher than Jenkins or Langford, Clark, Cruiser schemes. Okay. Yeah, I, that seemed a little... Well, seemed, seemed a little <laughs> he does have much. Big, he does have big upside, though. Like, okay. it, yeah, he. I mean, the Alfonso Soriano comps. That's not my. That's not my comp. Mm-hmm. That's, those are like scouts comps. You know, area scouts who've seen right. d- hundreds of players over decades. They they've compared him to Soriano. So hey, there's some there's some side there for sure. Yeah, and then uh, we'll get through the rest of this uh, first round here. These last picks are. It's a very high school heavy pool for the remainder of the first round. Uh, and this is another pick that you nailed, and you got this one. This was uh, Colt Emerson went to Seattle. He was the first of three high school bats that the Mariners drafted in this span of nine picks, which is crazy impressive. Uh, and then at 23, Ralphie Velasquez, like 
you just mentioned, uh, the catcher going to Cleveland. Uh, so would any quick thoughts on those two? Yeah, like them both. Love Colt Emerson. Um, safety kind of pick for a high schooler, as safe as you can get for a high schooler, to solid hit, field to hit. Um, Velasquez, as I said, like him more than Blake Mitchell, who was selected in the top ten. So. Okay, right. <laughs> Good pick for Cleveland. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and then 24, I I mentioned this a little bit prior. Uh, the Braves got an absolute steal, I think, with Hurston Waldrop, the college arm out of Florida. Like I, I mentioned last week that I had him going to the Rockies because of his incredible off-speed namely that blitter which some people are saying are a 70 maybe even 80 pitch like i i felt like that could play potentially very well in that run environment i'm very happy it doesn't have to um i think he he landed in like the best spot possible this is a great organization to finish off his development um you know there's there were certainly some uh problems there with him but you know if if any organization can work that out and have him in the big leagues like a year ahead of when anybody possibly projected it's the atlanta Braves. so i was very happy with that pick totally agree um organizations everything when it comes to pitching and atlanta turns them out so waldrop he has his his concerns with, with his command um maybe you know the fastball isn't the best shape. It gets hit a little hard, but if, if someone's going to, you know, fix those warts and ultimately capitalize on his big ceiling, it, it's going to be Atlanta. So I'm a, I'm a huge fan. Dylan Head, George Lombard Jr., Aiden Miller. What are your thoughts on, on those three picks? Yeah, I mean, I had Aiden Miller mocked quite a bit higher uh, than this at 27 to the Phillies. I, I think it's some of the best power on the high school side of this draft. I think he's a really good hitter, too. Um, he is older, right? He's 19 for a high schooler, which is going to concern some teams who like draft models like, you know, Tampa, <laughs> Cleveland, those teams up ahead. They, they really lean into, like, age to level um, in their draft models. So I think Aiden Miller at, at 27 to the Phillies is an absolute steal. A big fan, George Lombard as well. I like him. I like I like George Lombard. I think the the body is projectable. The power is real. I think he's a good hitter. Similarly, um, big fan of Lombard. You know, don't like him as much as Miller, but I do like him quite a bit there to the Yankees. And as you said, Dylan Head. It's more of a. I don't know. I don't want to call it like a safety pick, but it seems like there's a relatively high floor for a high school bat because of the defense. And, I mean, A.J. Preller, like, say what you want about the guy as the GM of the Padres. Um, he's, he makes questionable decisions sometimes when it comes to trades and free agency and all that. But the dude can scout. He is a fantastic drafter. He is he is the epitome of the scout GM. Um, so I trust him. I trust Preller when it comes to drafting. Hell yeah. Uh, and then at 28, the uh, Houston Astros, bit of a surprise pick, took Bryce Matthews, the shortstop out of Nebraska. Um, this is not a pick that I was really familiar with, but it seemed like as soon as he got taken by Houston, like everyone started like vaulting him up their boards and being like, "I love Bryce Matthews." Um, yeah. <laughs> what do you know about him? What do you? What's your thought? Yeah, I mean, it's it, it's it's a reach, I guess. 
Um, just because like Nebraska, he played at Nebraska. Like there's it, the competition isn't there like it is with the SEC bats. Um, the track record with Wood bats questionable, but the data though, the data is really strong. Like the exit velocities is really strong. He doesn't chase a lot. It's a good pick. It, it's one of those picks again, almost like the Rays. It's like as you said, like when Houston takes somebody, you you, you stop, you pause, you say, "What am I missing?" And yeah, it, people are people are definitely realizing that Bryce Matthews has a lot going for him when it comes to like the analytics side of the game. So, I kind of like it. Um, I kind of like it for for Houston. Um, there were definitely were guys with more upside who were taken in the second round, like a Sammy Stafura or um, a Walker Martin that I would have rather have gambled on from the prep ranks, but Hey, I mean, I can't knock it. Houston knows what they're doing. Certainly seems like it. Then with that, uh, 29th pick that we talked about last week that the uh, Seattle Mariners got as a reward for calling up Julio Rodriguez, having him on their opening day roster. And then he won rookie of the year. And this was the first time that we had seen this incentive, uh, actually used in the MLB draft. And Seattle used it on a high schooler Johnny Farmello, and I, I, I actually got that one, even you though nailed I, it. even though yeah. I pred- predicted him at uh, thirty instead of twenty nine, but whatever. Um, and then at thirty, they got Ty Pete out of high school, who I don't think either of us had going in the uh, first round. But what do you think about those two guys there alongside? Colt Emerson is this kind of trio of uh, high school talent yeah. coming into Seattle. It's it's pure upside gambles here, and I love it for Seattle. It's 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 Jared Apoto just putting the foot to the pedal. I love it. Um, Ty Pete is a guy that I had on like my list of potential picks for uh, the Mariners when we when we drafted. I ultimately chose to go elsewhere, but I'm I wasn't surprised to hear his name. This is a dude who is coming from the high school ranks as a shortstop who offers a ton of upside. I mean, it's insane bat speed. His his batting practice is a light show. His combine was outrageous. The con- the draft combine for MLB is a relatively uh, new thing, and we saw Ty Pete launch his stock. Um, he started getting rumors in the back half of the first round immediately after the combine mainly because of those light, those light show batting practices. Um, if, if they're able to, to kind of, you know, develop the hit tool uh, with Ty Pete, develop the pitch recognition, there's not a big gap between him and, like, Arjun Namala for me. Whoa. I'm into that. In terms of upside. Yeah, it's top 10 upside in the draft. Like, as I said earlier, there's big upside here with Pete. It's all about the hit tool. Very nice. And, uh, Nick, before we... Uh let you get out of here uh i'm just gonna run through the uh competitive balance picks and see if you have any thoughts on on those guys or there are any particular players in round two or beyond that you haven't mentioned yet that you wanted to uh touch on quick but before we let you go uh at 31 the rays got adrian santana a shortstop out of high school uh, at 32, Colin Houck fell all the way to the Mets, potentially high upside selection there. Uh, high school pitcher Josh Noth went to the Milwaukee Brewers at 33. 
Charlie Soto, who we both had going to Philadelphia, ended up going at 34 to the Twins. Thomas White, another high upside high school pitcher, went to Miami. So they got that combination of Noble Meyer and Thomas White. The Dodgers got an outfielder, Kendall George, also out of high school. The Tigers, like you said, took Kevin McGonigal. And then Cincinnati uh, got another LSU guy, Ty Floyd, who struck out 17 guys in the College World Series and vaulted up his stock a little bit. Um, I think you're particularly high on Floyd, so I know you're gonna, I'm going to let you get in on that. But also the sure. last pick of the competitive balance, the A's took the third Nailer brother, who I didn't know existed, Miles. And this one is a righty, <laughs> and he's a third baseman. <laughs> so what do you think about these guys? Any competitive balance picks you really want to stress or uh, anyone further? Yeah. I know that's kind of a broad question, but sure. uh, before we get out of here. Yeah, there's a few that really stand out. Um, How, as you said, is a great value for the Mets. Josh Noth, big-time upside prep pitcher um spin rates over 3000 on a slider dream dream landing spot for him in milwaukee for development kendall george uh to the dodgers so this was the first shocker of the draft um this is a guy that wasn't on my radar really at all to be honest and was usually around like pick a hundred um like ranked around a hundred for the big outlets like baseball america and mlb pipeline um, it, last year it was Xavier Isaac. A couple of years ago it was Evan Carter. Sometimes these shocker picks work out, and the Dodgers are a fantastic organization. I mean, if you want to talk about a sign that baseball is moving toward like small ball, speed oriented game, Kendall George is is that. I mean, there's next to no power, but there's like eighty grade game breaking fastest player in baseball potentially type of speed with Kendall George here. Wow. That, that that signals to me that the Dodgers, an extremely smart organization, are thinking that this like small ball speed first era is gonna continue into the decade. So that was really interesting to me. Oh wow. Um Ty yeah, it it it's it, it, like there's there's like there's clues, right? It signals to me um that maybe they think this is here for the long haul. Um because Kendall George is not a guy that you would see the Dodgers be be evaluing. Um, he just it, it, there's not there's not there's no power. The hit tool is solid, but it's not great. It's just speed. It's just potentially, as I said, the fastest player in baseball. It's true eighty grade speed. Damn. Um, so I thought that was super fascinating. Um, and yeah, Ty Floyd, <laughs> huge fan. Ty Floyd. Um, Love the landing spot in Cincinnati for all the reasons I said with Rhett Louder, just a fantastic pitching development organization. So another dream landing spot. Wow. Um, yeah, and we should also clarify that those um, Mets and Dodgers picks were technically round one selections that were moved down 10 slots due to going over the second luxury tax or the third one. I'm not quite sure, but one <laughs> of those. <laughs> Um, and then, yeah, I mean, any like late, super like late round guys that we didn't get to touch on yet? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll keep it in the second round, I think. Sure. Um, there were a couple of like super late guys, but really this, this draft kind of shook out, um, I think as expected. There weren't, sometimes you see guys 
fall to like the fifth round um, that should have gone in like the second or first round. That didn't really happen this year. Um, but I will shout out like Sammy Stafura to the the Reds, who I think just overall had a fantastic draft. Uh, our guy Lou James Groover, <laughs> Gino Groover, as he goes by, to the D backs, love that fit. Walker Martin, as I said, and another guy that we haven't touched on at all um, that I want to bring up, Alex Clemmy, uh, ended up going to the Guardians at pick fifty eight. Um, he's out of he's out of Rhode Island. Big projectable lefty, like lanky guy, six six, disgusting stuff. It's it's absolutely nasty. The command is is not there presently, but you think about an organization that really knows how to develop pitching. Cleveland is toward the top of that list. Um, so Alex Clemmy, late in the second round, that's a name to watch. He could be a big riser in the next couple of years. Nick. Thank you so much, man. You have been an incredible help to us over the past two weeks, both with last week's mock draft and this week's draft recap. I truly couldn't have done it without you, and uh, really appreciate you being here. Absolutely, yeah. It's always a pleasure joining you guys, and there's nothing more I uh, enjoy talking about than prospects. So, Hell yeah. <laughs> happy to be, happy to do well, it. Well, you guys can follow Nick at Prospect sauce over on twitter while it's in its dying days nick we got to get you over on (laughs) on the blue sky sooner rather than later yeah maybe maybe threads yeah (laughs) i haven't i haven't checked out threads yet oh it's terrible that's the last resort dude i i downloaded it i was on it for like three days it was just like sprite jimmy johns (laughs) and just like a bunch of corporations corporate riffing yeah. with each other <laughs> oh it, it was unbearable i immediately deactivated my account um yeah. <laughs> yeah i don't think it has the juice but yeah that'll do it for our draft recap nick thank you again uh we'll be seeing you soon and uh back to our regular scheduled programming welcome back we're here on mudville we've got a remote edition as my co-host brody is not here with me in Brooklyn. He is back home, um, and he is trying to acquire the deed to his neighbor's house. Um, I to, wish that was why. Yeah, I don't know. I, I was trying to like make something up because I did that a few times in a row, and I was trying to make it a running bit. Continue but I, I thought of absolutely yeah. nothing in the moment. So why don't you just? Why don't we? Yeah. Why don't we just move on? I uh, well I. You know, I'm not back home permanently. I'm here for um, a few days out of the week for the next few weeks because I took a job for the summer because there's zero movie jobs. Wonder why. Once again, things are only getting worse. The thing is, though, is I actually think things are getting worse is better right now because like the way that a lot of the actors have now gone about this is like putting a lot more pressure on production companies than had just been with the writers, which was already an immense amount of pressure. So, you know, I'm optimistic. Yeah. As much as you can be. And, so, yeah. yeah. And Hey, it's, uh, sorry. D- didn't mean to interrupt. Uh, it's me. I'm, uh, I'm just calling in. I'm the guy who's in charge of, uh, all the salaries in Hollywood, <laughs> uh, for writers and actors. And, uh, I heard you guys were going to be discussing this. So I decided to call in. We think you're doing a great yeah. job. Thank yeah, you okay. so much You're for for your yeah. all of your service. Um, yeah, you know, uh, chat, everyone is thrilled with your work that you've done. 
Thank you. You know, ChatGPT is really doing a lot for uh, <laughs> uh, my efforts to uh, crush human creativity into a pile of dust and snort it. And just any kind of uh, genuine uh, emotion. Yeah. You don't want yeah. that anymore. Yeah. Yep. Um, None of that. Morgan, what's on the slate coming up? What do we have to look forward to with some of these new releases? What have you greenlit recently? Oh, yeah. So... Uh, we're going to be making uh, Speed 6. We haven't made uh, the second, the, the fourth or fifth yet. Two, two uh, through five. <laughs> yeah, no, we, there are two and three exist. Uh, one takes place on a boat, I believe. I haven't seen those, but... Uh, which Wait, is weird you haven't seen the actual sequels to Speed? I have not. That's no. kind of crazy. You're a fake fan. That's like I, if I, I hadn't know. seen... I, I can't think of an analogy. My, my brain isn't uh, quite in tune yet. Baseball 2. We'll get there. Yeah. Ken Burns uh, baseball too. Yeah, so there's that. Uh, there's. I haven't be, seen um, Ken Burns baseball. Yeah, it's Ooh. very long. Uh, there's <laughs> yeah. a, a secret third comic book company. Uh, so we're gonna be making a lot of their movies, and uh, we're thinking that that might last for like fifty years and spark like some of the least tolerable debates in the history of the internet. <laughs> we figured um, Marvel didn't go far enough. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The third comic book company is definitely going to bring that about. But the big thing that I'm excited for is um, is uh, whitewashing the reputations of a bunch of sleazebags and scoundrels. And uh, that's mainly what I was hired to do. And uh, by pushing my iron foot down on the uh, wor- working writers and actors that uh, drive the industry that has made me so rich, I, I just feel like <laughs> that's a really good way to accomplish that. Well... You're right. You're <laughs> on to something there. In should case I, you should don't, I snap out of this bit now? Yeah, I was going to say, uh, in case the <laughs> the listeners don't quite know, first of all, who our guest is, it's Mr. Morgan Staub, Brody's brother, who we had on our second episode of the podcast, and now we've got him back. We're going to talk about some fun theories and uh, interesting all-star break just a little bit. But first, if you didn't know what we were talking about with that extended bit, last night the CEOs and producers put out a statement about the ice-cold tactic that they're taking in the fight against the writers and now also the actors who announced their strike today. Uh, It's an unprecedented move as both had not been striking at the same time in like decades. I think it was like the 60s the last time. I think Ronald Reagan was in charge of SAG the last time this happened. <laughs> yeah, isn't that Take from that what you will. <laughs> I, I, I don't mean to interrupt, but I actually have a question because I haven't been following this that closely. Yeah, yeah, um, sure. So is that, I, I did a little bit of reading, is that in direct reaction to the writer's strike or was it just a coincidence that these happened to it's, be going out at the same it's time? It's coincidental. In conjunction with it. They, uh, they, they walked out of uh, like screenings and it's you know it's part of it because they're, I think uh, it was Fran Drescher today, who's the president of SAG, saying, like, this is all part of the same deal here. You know, if we don't help the writers, like, they are, you know, we're more like them than the production companies. So it's, uh, yeah. it's this benefits all of us for all of us to get what we're, what we're due. Yeah, basically, yeah. Uh, um, SAG, AFTRA, and the WGA are two separate sets of negotiations. But at this point in time, both of them are negotiating with the same people and the same people are displaying not only an immense villainous array of greed evil. Evil. Um, yeah, yeah i was going to say greed but i could say evil too um they're also now insisting that artificial intelligence can be used on these sets where they could scan a 
background actor's face for one day and then just use him forever and that would yeah, completely that, that destroy was like reading that acting. My skin crawl. Yeah. yeah i did i did see that and i had the thought uh, i don't want the fbi to come visit me uh where i live but um i think we should just nuke the room where they keep all the ai servers uh from orbit <laughs> make them restart um, and then give us a few more years of you know life yeah because that's like the worst thing i've ever heard in my life like it's i don't terrible. understand when this shift happened that um we no longer want uh, humans to do things. We just want them done. And it seems to me that the point of, um, you know, as much as a hard time I give movies, they are art for sure. And the, seems to me the point of making art is to have humans do it, you know, You'd instead think. of just having it done <laughs> yeah. as efficiently as possible. So, But that's, just, they're uh, trying to yeah. remove that. That's like the Disney process is creating like a machine that churns out these movies and, you know, at the cheapest price possible or this content, you know, it's content. It's content being made for the sake of, you know, selling toys yeah. or, you know, whatever. Can I still watch Treasure Planet on Disney Plus? <laughs> I've never seen I, it. I, I wasn't planning on it. Have you been watching The Replacements or whatever the hell that thing is called? The Samuel L. Jackson thing? No, I don't even know. What, I didn't know that existed that until nobody right now. even knows exists. It's Samuel L. Jackson. He's one of the biggest box office movie stars on the planet. He's on a show for Disney, the largest production company, and no one even knows it exists. Yeah, <laughs> that's Speaking streaming, Disney, baby. Despite the fact that these are separate strikes, the fact that they are now happening at the same time, the writers and actors are, of course, supporting each other in solidarity with each other because they want the exact same thing. And they honestly right. need to win because if the studios win, art is probably done forever in the United States, or at, at least it's severely crippled for generations to come and that's just simply unacceptable um so of course you know this is a very pro-labor podcast we're very much in support of these two organizations Big in case anybody thought we were in bed with the, the studios <laughs> we're not the longest longest possible con <laughs> this is where yeah our hard pro management turn entertainmentcommunityfund.org so if you've been working for five out of the last seven years uh and can prove that you've made at least sixty five hundred dollars within the industry you can qualify for benefits through uh a community fund like a mutual aid firm um that's running for the strike so that's for actors and writers um, so if that applies to you and you're listening, definitely go do that. Um, cause everybody's hurting and people are looking out for you. Um, unfortunately I do not qualify for that. Um, but it is, uh, you know, it's hard times. And a lot of my friends that I've made through the industry in the last few years also don't qualify as a lot of us are very young. Some of the older ones I'm sure are fine, but you know, actually, and that touches to a point I was going to mention too, the, the SAG strike, you know, of course, movie stars are part of that, but there's so many actors who make nothing so that's you know who are part of sag um and so they're just as affected as the writers as the crew as anyone else who does this for a living and is now out on their ass so it's uh and that's exactly what they want according to studio executives as they said blatantly yesterday what i was just about to literally homeless yeah so they can yeah, it's awful. What I was just about to say, the CEOs and producers put out, or one anonymous person who I wish that they had not granted anonymity to because he doesn't yeah, deserve it. Amazingly um, cowardly. Yeah, they they made a 
statement about their ice cold tactic that they're taking for the end game of the fight against the writers and the unions and it consists quite literally of waiting until people start losing their apartments and losing their homes at which point they will be forced to come back to the table and accept even worse conditions when so many of these people were already unable to make a living wage or live in an apartment without six other roommates or ever even dream of buying a house or starting a family or yeah, yeah but nolan the thing that you don't understand is it's a necessary evil mm, oh the of studios course. need to make money mm-hmm yeah, and um people who make the AI software need to make money. Isn't that more important yeah. than all these? Oh yeah, I mean they're they're definitely they need to make their investors back their their profit, of course. That that's much more important than uh you know, all of our employment. Yeah, um, you know what's what's sickening to me is this I mean, obviously that's one of the most evil things I've ever heard, but this idea that when you hear something like that you associate it with the bad guy in a movie. Or the bad guy in a TV show, the rich it's guy who buys up the mall yeah. and it's paves villainous. over paves over the skate park or whatever to build uh, condos or whatever. They frack and, the mountain. Exactly, and the reason we associate that stuff with that is because of people who write movies and TV shows and books and the media that we have. And to me, it's almost like I don't understand how you give a quote like that. And I don't think I'm meant to understand this because I think to attain that job, you have to have a certain level of, um, I don't want to say sociopathy, but like a certain level of uh, detachment. I'll, I'll, I'll say sociopathic. It's sociopathy. Uh, that's, that's fair. I think. I mean, psychopathy, yeah, yeah. maybe. I, I, yeah. Something, just something where it's like you give that quote and you go home and you look at yourself in the mirror and you're like, yeah, that was my job for the day was to tell a bunch of people I want to kick them out of their apartments because they want to make money making art. Like that's just. I mean, it's like it's like the landlord from Rent. I In mean, service of Wall Street's yeah. profit margins. Exactly. It's just actually, actually, that's the, the only thing. Rent is a very good uh, good analogy there because he was like part of the the group. I don't have to go into a whole thing about Rent, but that was like. Oh no, we can. I love Rent. <laughs> yeah, no, but he was like friends <laughs> with them the and then became a landlord and then wanted to evict them. And it's like that's oh, just God. perfect little. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, reflection of the owner class. Of course. <laughs> of course, it's not a realistic plan and it's a scare tactic that clearly didn't work at all. But I hope that the transparent malintent from these studio heads will start to make some people with actual power and actual sway start to realize that maybe the end game of all this isn't striking a deal and continuing to work with people who are literally willing to let you starve. Like the yeah, high yeah. point of American cinema came in the 1970s, I think personally, when a lot of directors had more free reign over their films and they owned percentages of each other's films. And it, it wasn't a system that proved sustainable for a number of reasons, but I have to imagine that there's no shortage of outside finance that could be used to make movies independently from the studios. Like, Okay, maybe we can't make $300 million multiverse with, like, A-list actors content anymore, but I don't want that shit anyway. Like, they, There's no way that people can't say, what if I invested $5 million into, like, 10 different filmmakers and I gave them free reign over all of their projects? Like, you would, get, you would have people lining up 
to work with you. Like you would be the most yeah. successful producer in the world and you would be doing it under a model that could allow people to live. And I, I just, I can't help but, and like, this is a pipe dream. I know what I'm saying is not how the world works, but part of me really wants this to accelerate the democratization of cinema in, in some way. Yeah, yeah, and you know what's, what's funny about that? I'm actually going to shock you guys. Well Re- absolutely. I'm going to shock you guys in reference to a small-time movie that I've seen. Uh, that kind of sounds like uh, the, the high-flying bird theory, right? The the movie about is that what it's called the movie about the, the uh, Soderbergh that is that is what iPhones. it's called but I saw it so long ago that I don't remember the yeah. actual uh, finance of it. So the basic conceit was that it was an NBA I I, I saw it long ago too but I, yeah. I believe it was an NBA lockout and some of the players got together and figured that if they live stream them playing you know three on three at the park they could make money that way and they wouldn't be beholden to the league now obviously. In the movie, I don't think that quite worked out because a sports league is a little bit different than movie cinemas. But it is that kind of idea, like you were saying, democratization of media, democratization of everything, where it's like people want to consume this because they enjoy it. People do not want to consume this because they want to give people money. So, like, exactly, or, or the people that they do want to give money are the people doing it. It's not they don't want to give producers money is what I should say. And that's, that's the thing with that, like, you know, modern technology and everyone having cameras and the ability to reach people is, you know, it, it makes that possible, but that's why I think studios are so desperate to then regain control by having it then be AI and even cheapen the labor because it is possible for people to now, you know, get out away, you know, like away from their, claws (laughs) claws <laughs> and you know and their money making machine so it's like yeah they it, they've it worked incredibly them, hard they need to you know keep control over it yeah they've worked incredibly hard to to make sure that people don't have access to resources that could really be easily distributed um and of course it's in service of the idea that only they can do what they do. It's the same thing with like tax brokers and H and R block or whatever. Like they, they keep it away from the masses as much as they can just to serve this facade that they actually do anything important. Exactly. Right. So what are the latest development? Where are we in this? um, Well, what I was actually latest is the, yeah, the actors are, you know, joining in and that like the hope is, um, well, actually, so I should mention the um, I saw a, a good piece, you know, about like it was like a minute long, but they were talking about how um, the deadline that they were mentioning in that, you know, that thing like the anonymous dude said was October Just because he thought, you know, arbitrary which, by the way, date, was a year yeah. from when I first heard about this coming. Um, and I think I heard about it before you know, most people because a lot of people in the industry had foreseen it coming. So Brody that's, got the that scoop. would be a full year. Um, yeah, was and, told about uh, it. <laughs> so, I, but what they said in the, you know, in the thing, I forget who it was, but he said, that's not a deadline for us. That's their deadline before they start losing money. Right. Like, right. it's not, you know, that is like, that doesn't mean soft. anything to us. Yeah. Right. It's actually ready to a um, fight the long fight and, you know, be in it for, you know, the long haul. Yep. They won't settle for anything that they don't deserve. So um, there was a quote from Jeff Passan about last year's MLB lockout that really, I think, ties all of this together perfectly. And here's the quote. It was, if you went and got the next 1,200 best players in the world, the product would suffer greatly. 
if you handed MLB teams over to any 30 competent business people, the sport would not suffer. Actually, it might improve. It doesn't take a billionaire to leverage a spot in a legalized monopoly with profound built-in revenues. The Yankees are not the Yankees if Babe Ruth, Lou Gehrig, Mickey Mantle, and Yogi Berra don't win. Without the best players, they aren't in the World Series, and without championships they're more than an organization and a big market whose laundry features pinstripes case in fucking point that's not part of the quote that's my commentary but that's awesome (laughs) one would think then that a league would recognize that its profits exist because of shohei otani fernando tatis jr mike trout juan soto mookie betts ronald acuna jr vladimir guerrero jr and others and would see players concerns about the state of the game not as trivial or excessive or outrageous but vital it absolutely and and that's what it's always been isn't it is is that you know people are so this idea is so ingrained in people that we have to have things the way they are like this and you know if you take a step back and look at it it's like Yes, it's very difficult to do it in a different way that doesn't involve, you know, the centralization of all these corporations controlling media, but it doesn't have to be like this. It just is like this, you know, and that's, I think that's important to think about at least, even if it's not, uh, not a viable action plan. I think it's important to look at things that way and say, these are how they're organized, but there's nothing inherent in this that makes it have to be organized this way. So Absolutely. to tie this even further into baseball, I would I want to go off what you just said with the it doesn't have to be like that. It just is like that. Uh, and also speaking of greed, out, all of us are Yankee fans. <laughs> and I think maybe this bothers me more than the two of you. But the fact that they announced that they're putting a patch on the jersey, it actually it made me ill yesterday when I read it for the first time. Because my whole life rooted like part of my personality in the fact that I root for a team who, you know, the, the uniform is so iconic and all the history and they buy into the mythos of the whole, you know, we haven't changed the jersey. Ruth wore that jersey, whatever. Um, and it will be the first time ever. We are the first Yankee fans who are not now just getting the same uniform that we've seen forever. We are now going to also be partially rooting for an insurance company, which made me sick. (laughs) And I, uh, no facial uh, hair, no beards. uh, Yeah. No no names names on the jerseys. No facial hair because we're the Yankees and we're above all that, but no no long uh, hair. I disagree that uh, they should keep the no names on the bag. Every team actually should not have. Yeah. I'm with that too, but it's just in the spirit of I'm a fan of the no names on the bag. Obviously that's part of the deal. I, I, it just, I, I cannot believe the first words on a Yankee Jersey other than New York. I know. Are going to be star insurance. star insurance, not Ruth, not Judge, <laughs> not Barra, not Mantle, not whatever. Go on and name everybody. Yeah, but I, I mean, I did hear. I it's sickened me. I, I agree with you. I was listening to uh, Sports Talk Radio early earlier today because my brain's doing fine. And um, <laughs> one thing that I heard because they were discussing this was they talked about a few years ago. And I'm not saying I agree with this because in principle, I 100% agree with everything Brody just said. But they did point out how the swoosh on the uniforms was a big deal. When and, they put that on, yeah. people were angry. And eventually it does kind of blend into the background. And that is a symbol of a corporation also. And the thing, the, it, it's like, it, it does, it will eventually blend in. And I don't think we'll notice it forever. With that being said, I do think it's disgusting from a principal standpoint to have yeah. this on there. 
But I just don't think, um, I do think this is something that we'll be mad about for now, but eventually we'll move on to concerns like the fact that DJ Lemayhew is playing like he's 68 years old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we can we can do a State of the Union in a second, but I think the thing with the the Nike swoosh, and you're right, like yes, that is that's part of the conversation is the fact that the swoosh is on there and whatever. The thing is though, they make the jerseys, so like it's inherently tied to the product on the field. This is a separate entity being brought in for nothing but money. Money that the New York Yankees, by the way, don't need. <laughs> I, it's an extra $25 million a year. What this is doing, essentially, is paying off Josh Donaldson. No, it's pay, it's uh, it's for when they sign Robbie Grossman to a uh, seven-year, <laughs> $70 million deal in the offseason. That's what... I, it's, I mean, yeah, it's it's sickening bad. is the only word that I can use. I've used it a million times. Morgan, you're, you're good with historical things <laughs> horrific for me Bollocks it's perfect. it's just part of a long line of recent decisions that just haven't felt like the yankees and have personally just alienated me against even yeah. feeling passionate about this team like i had i said a, a very similar thing and i think that the primary example of this was when they showed the 2004 Boston Red Sox video when they were down 3 nothing in last year's ALCS. Right. Like, that was a moment, like, that was truly a turning point for me where I felt like all of my worst fears as a fan were confirmed and the first half of this 2023 season um, would only confirm those fears. Um, you, you, yeah, you guys, were, you're lucky, man. You're lucky you remember it a little bit less because... I, and it is comforting in a way because I know that no matter what happens, I'll never see anything that bad from the Yankees again. But I don't know. That sweep against the yeah, Astros is uh, awful. But no, no, God, no, 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 no. I know it's nothing. I know, I know, I know. I'm just saying. But I, it, but you are right. In the, but the, I know. I'm gonna get in trouble here. Listen, George Steinbrenner is a sacred cow, right? You don't say anything bad about George, but I do. I, I would. Okay, good. So we, we agree. <laughs> Listen, George was not George until a few years before he died. Yes. The Yankee fans remember him. George was a joke. And what I mean by that is he – I don't know if you guys know this. He tried to change the uniforms when he bought the team. He tried to have inverse pinstripes on the road. That was one of his ideas. So the idea like that – blue and white? Yes, it would have been navy blue with white pinstripes. Uh, and I believe the traveling secretary saw them in his office and talked him out of it. But the the point is, the idea that bugs me is that the Yankees haven't always been this way. Because to a certain extent, they have. And it was just that George's worst instincts were eventually reined in a little bit by Stick Michael. But in, on the baseball operations side a little bit. But I, I what bothers me is when people say George wouldn't stand for this. Because... George was about making money, too, and he did want to win. He wanted to win more than any other owner at the time, but he also wanted to make money, and that's why he wanted to win, was to put a team on the field that could win and to attract people to the Bronx to watch the Yankees. So I, I think I, I, what, what gets mixed up is people identified George as someone who respected the Yankees' brand, which, whether true or not, is a figure that diehard fans want because it feels like something that they relate to because we honor the team and the history, I think, more than it feels like the ownership does. He was and only I think that that, able that to is like, lost on people. Yeah, he was only able to create that 
Yankee brand though because he had so much more money than everybody else like yeah just like so much else it's like kind of false mythology he would have bought he he tried the reason he bought the Yankees is because he couldn't buy the Cleveland at at the time Indians that's the only reason he he was trying to buy a football team no he was trying to buy the Cleveland he was trying to buy Cleveland and he couldn't buy them so he bought the Yankees instead because CBS put them up for sale so I my, my main point here is that I think that there are parts of there's a segment of the Yankee fan base that tends to lionize George and ask. I mean, I ask my dad all the time. My dad will constantly rant about the Yankees trading Jose Rijo and Doug Drabeck and like all these <laughs> Jay, young, Buhner. <laughs> Jay Buhner, famous on Seinfeld and, and, you know, trying to dig up dirt on one of his favorite players, Dave Winfield. Yeah. And the, the point Period. about that like, is yeah. Winfield the hated him. They, yeah. Yeah, because Reggie Jackson and Billy Martin coming back all the time, them fighting like yeah, it was a zoo, and I, that's what I, I and listen, I respect George for what he did for being willing to spend money. I think that that's all you can ask from an owner. I respect that part of him, but I do think that Yankee fans can get a little histrionic when it comes to this idea that the Yankees are somewhat um were different when George was like they were in some ways, but in other more broader strokes they're they were different because they won and they are not they're not winning winning. fixes everything yeah yes it certainly fixes public perception of yeah and that is why he has been mythologized to the point where he is now basically a mythical figure and that he was a real person who existed but nobody remembers exactly what he did or you know the way that he would do it or his you know accomplishments are kind of you know like painted over in a different light and just he is essentially he's a he's a legendary figure in the direct definition of the word in that he is yeah. like he's more legend than truth at this point. <laughs> like I said, um, I, I would probably yeah. argue that that's false mythology, but um, we definitely went on a little bit of a tangent yeah, there. And if, if I don't, if I don't mind, <laughs> that if we shit could, has been on my mind for days. <laughs> sure. Get it out. I, I, I think that it's even. super uh, easy to take that Jeff Passan quote and apply it to these WGA SAG after strikes because the people who have all of the money, by all accounts, own these uh, industries and own what's being created, even though they aren't the ones who are making it good, are just greedy bloodsuckers who refuse to even engage with labor in any sort of good faith even in this even in all of these scenarios where they have no chance of actually losing negotiations they could cave to these demands these entirely reasonable demands which are probably about one third of what these people are actually worth and they wouldn't even know the fucking difference like wall street's profit margin could go down to percentage or whatever but people all across the country might be able to actually earn a living wage and afford rent and be able to cook medicine. dinner and start families <laughs> yeah. and afford medicine yeah um yeah. All, all the things that these rich ceos uh, have taken for granted also. their entire <laughs> lives it's very yeah. important to remember the context of these strikes because the alternative to that happening is 10 rich businessmen owning a fifth yacht and it's completely repulsive that these people are able to hold these industries hostage deprive thousands of people of steady work and income deprive the world of movies and tv shows just so they can be a little bit happier about their profit margins by the way with with sag getting involved that extends to 
things like uh, you know, um, like comedians or you know, like stand-up comedy is not going to be around. Like, there's there are so many things that are going to be affected by this. It's you mean sad. I can't watch comedians and cars getting coffee anymore? <laughs> oh man, if <laughs> that's going to be I, all I don't, that I don't think we're Jerry able to watch, is really. Uh, I don't know how concerned he is, but. <laughs> Yeah, he's worth billions. But yeah, there's it's not going to be any actual shows, so that's all that's going to be left. Just comedians you guys, you guys and can cars join me watching coffee. Outer Banks on Netflix. <laughs> uh, how about that? We'll all watch Outer Banks and do his watchable. <laughs> also, um, Brody, yeah, ahead, the fact that you and I, as uh, Ithaca College alums, in our very right. first semester at school, were part of a mass FaceTime with Disney CEO Bob Iger, and now he is the one literally who is preventing everybody in that room from yep. attaining work i just find that so darkly ironic like my yeah, god man oh. he actually so he came in um and also gave a talk which i know you didn't go to but i i i did go to it and at one point he asked the crowd um who watches shows and who watches channels mainly like who would like go to this is before disney plus existed this is before streaming was like the way that it is now obviously it's in 2016 or 17 um and he asked who watches like tv shows on you know and they wouldn't even care about the channel or whatever everybody raised their hands and then he said, so who would just throw on a channel and just watch that? Because I'm sure, like, you noticed, Disney Channel was getting no play and ESPN was failing and whatever. Um, and, like, one, literally one person in the entire room raised her hand. And she goes, er, and he, he said, I want to give her a job, like, immediately. And it was just like, well, okay. Like, <laughs> it's, like, I don't know. His it's um, performative bullshit. He would never give her a job. Ignore the mask for what he wants <laughs> was on full display. Yeah, but. it's just, it's very, the whole thing is very disheartening, especially, I, I just think the timing is a little suspicious also, him coming back to run Disney just before this whole thing went down. Um, obviously, I don't know how long this was in the offing, but if you know anything about management, they're always planning on different ways to quash labor. So right. if they did something like this coming and they were like, we got to get Bob back in here because he's a better person to rule this with an iron fist. I mean, I wouldn't put that past anyone. That's no, very possible. Um, I yeah. kind of have the opposite theory though. And I think that he left initially to get out before the pandemic. And then he came back after it was over. Like that the, was the pandemic the... that he started. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, his he, cabal. He yeah. knew that it was happening. A bunch of uh, I don't know, like more Disney specific things where like they wanted to change a bunch of stuff with the theme parks, and there was like a, I don't know, it's a whole thing. But um, anyway, there's yeah. a lot of theories on Iger yeah. and his you know level in, of involvement <laughs> and how it changes. But but <laughs> yeah, what we know for sure is that there are thousands of people who are currently striking for not only better conditions but for the future of writing for the future of television for the future of movies and for the future of art in this country and those people Absolutely. need to be supported and that these uh corporate demons um <laughs> really aren't people who deserve to be working in the industry like they they should go out of business honestly after those quotes any polite society would shun the person who said that for the rest of his i assume it's a man's life um why, why are you assuming that because he's a dick yeah <laughs> i feel like yeah, I, you know what you know what female executives can be 
harsh and ruthless too it could very well be a woman i don't mean to be misogynist on the mudville podcast i, I was mostly kidding I, I think it's a man yeah <laughs> do you guys want to talk about the uh home run derby the all-star break you got anything about that yeah, yeah. And, and i so did you guys watch the all-star game because i was i was at dinner with a friend yeah. and I, I, I did not i went to go see the new mission impossible which i was going to talk about in a second but no, no i didn't watch it, it. it was uh it was pretty good it was watched yeah, I was just gonna say, did you notice, bro? Because I noticed this. I don't remember exactly how long we've been doing the New Jerseys. Um, uh, that's exactly what I was gonna say. <laughs> yeah, I really don't enjoy that. But I Me think neither. last year it looked better. These jerseys did not look good. So man. ugly. They were really. <laughs> ugly. This looked like a college game. Like, first of all, whoever did the helmets, it was going around Twitter. It was clearly the guy who made the Great Britain WBC uniforms. <laughs> like, it was just a letter. I like those. I'll defend those. The, the helmets? No, the Great Britain uniforms. I think they perfectly oh. represent that country. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm kind of kidding, but also I, I do. No, I I know you're completely serious. <laughs> the um, famous um, Jean Luc Godard quote: uh, "The British contributed what they always do, nothing." Exactly, <laughs> and that's why I thought it was. Yeah, nice. yeah um, Morgan is staunchly anti-British. Uh, yeah, that's... not not a big fan. Um, Probably just, something that should be brought up. But. I'm, I'm okay <laughs> with that. Nineties uh, rock music. Um, I feel like yeah, they're okay the to discriminate fun, against them. But yeah, continue. I always enjoy the Derby more these days. Um, but I I really like seeing uh, that performance from Adley where he switched to the other side of the plate halfway through. I thought yeah. that was awesome. That was um, awesome. He's so I, cool. Yeah, man. he's. He's the best, man. Also, uh, you know, it used to be more so like, a, you know, I mean, it's still a celebration of baseball and whatever, but not involving the team's jerseys now and having just another, like, Nike thing to sell is, um, it goes on the same vein. And now I think we can kind of wrap that up and put it to bed. But um, it's depressing. But I think yeah. what, like, the stars that were on display in the Derby, I think, did a fantastic job of doing what they were supposed to do and why they were there. Julio Rodriguez put on a show akin to like a Josh Hamilton in 08, almost. That yeah. was probably the craziest thing I think I've ever seen. Um, but this was very fun to watch. And like just watching the number climb up and just seeing swing after swing after swing and knowing it's gone um, and hitting 40 homers, 41 home runs in, in the first round in three minutes. I, that is, you know, that's something. But um, I, I and also... I kind of feel bad for Pete Alonso now, but no. um, I don't no, like part of me, mic, part of me does hard pass. No, like, eh. no cut his mic. Um, that's why I don't, he talks too much and talks too much of a big game. But anyway, go on. This is, this is the last point I have to make on this, but I was just going to say, I think it's really cool uh, for on a positive note to see uh, Seattle uh, celebrating baseball like that because yeah. For my entire life, like I'm not even being dramatic, since I was a tiny child, Seattle has been no good. They've had great players, and they've been no good. And it is a baseball town. If you know anything about the 90s in Seattle, they were crazy for the Mariners. Yeah. And it's it's great to see the Mariners kind of climbing back and and reclaiming that town that belongs to them and having a young star like j It and felt very I, special. It did. I really liked seeing that. And now – uh. I, I hate to uh, take the reins here, but I do. I, I do want to get this game in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Absolutely, let's do it. The, <laughs> the last thing okay, that I so, did want to say though about yeah, the yeah, go uh, ahead, go ahead. Seattle was 
I loved their their presence in the draft, how they booed Rob Manfred so heavily, how they booed the Astros pick to the point where it actually pissed him off. And then as soon as Raul Labanez <laughs> came on for the second half, they were like, whoa, we love Raul. Um, I thought that that was some very fun uh, comic timing. Uh, I like that they chanted, come to Seattle at Shohei. Yeah, that's um, cool. And I feel like half of the people on my social media feeds for baseball fans are Seattle Mariners fans. Like, I don't know why that is, but there, there's a very dense population of Seattle fans on my follows 40 of uh, Mina Kimes burner accounts. <laughs> no, but yeah. I agree. There is a large population and that's yeah. why I think it's such a great baseball town. You know, they yeah. have very passionate fans. I've seen nothing for years, you know, there for the festivities. And, uh, you know, I, he mentioned that every, where you looked like in hotels or whatever. I mean, like the streets were packed and people wearing jerseys and just, you know, over like uh, doorways and hotels, they had like photos of the all-stars and just, you know, everywhere yeah. you went, it was people talking baseball and just, you know, different fans coming in and it's excited to see it. And, you know, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's lovely. Absolutely. Okay. So, all right, here's let's my, do it. Here's my game. So I'm going to give you 13 players and, the first thing that's going to jump out at you is immediately that these people have something very – they're baseball players. They have something very obvious in common. I'm not looking for that. Okay. I want you to try to tell me the other thing they have in common. Okay. Okay. Yes, two things. I'm going to read off I, it's 13, 13 people, so I assume so, but hit me. 13 names. Okay. Buster Posey, Gary Sanchez, Jesus Montero, Devin Mezzarocco, Mike Zanino, Travis Darno, Austin Hedges, Blake Swihart, Alex Jackson, Francisco Mejia, Kiber Ruiz, Joey Bart, and Adley Rushman. So at the same time, you guys can tell me what the obvious thing is. Uh, they all are huge fans of Oasis. Correct. Wow. <laughs> yeah, the the obvious thing is that they're all catchers. Uh, I, I would guess that what they have in common is they were all top 10 prospects at one point. Extremely close. Oh. Uh, I'm, I'm just going to give one a, Number one prospects in their organization, respectively. Maybe, but that's not what I was looking for. No one was very close. These are all catchers from between 2010 and 2020 who were at one point – Baseball America top 30 prospects. The point I'm trying to make here is if you look at these names that I just gave you, besides the first and last, which is Buster Posey and Adley Rushman, does anything stick out about these players who were at one point top 30 prospects in baseball? Yeah, a lot of flameouts. <laughs> flameouts exactly. for sure, but also like guys who I think might have been seen. I mean, I, I guess except for like Zanino. A lot of them might have been more like offensive, yeah. In their yeah, the uh, profiles, like they didn't necessarily yeah. say like framing or anything was their strong suit. Exactly. I think those what guys have probably at. had a higher hit rate. Yeah, exactly. So the point that I'm making, and this is a controversial theory, is that you should always trade your catcher prospects. Wow, catcher prospects are overvalued because of where they play. If any of these other guys, based on their raw tools, except for guys like Buster Posey and Rushman, or maybe Gary Sanchez and the Miners, if those guys were right fielders, I don't think they're top 30 prospects. And I think that people fall into this trap of 
you know, clinging to prospect rankings. And I think that very attached. Yeah. When you have a top 30 prospect, who's a catcher, I just think that, and I didn't include people from the past three years on this list. Cause it's too easy to say, like I didn't include Francisco Alvarez or Gabriel Moreno, but I just think it's important when you look at the history of high prospect catchers, I just think that recently, and obviously catcher's been on an offensive downturn for a while. We all know that. I really think you'd be better off trading these guys unless they're Adley Rushman or Buster Posey. And I don't mean unless they're like those guys. I mean unless they're literally those guys. <laughs> I, like, right, sure. right. I would trade all of them. And I don't know. Do you guys think that that's a bad I, way to go about it? I guess I have a few mixed thoughts on that because right now it feels like there are so many uh, top-tier catching prospects. Like, I'm in a number of fantasy leagues, and it always seems like each team at like at the start of the year had an elite catching prospect because like just to name a few of course we had both uh henry davis and andy rodriguez on the pirates uh gabriel moreno traded from the blue jays to uh arizona before the start of the diego, year diego cartaya yeah one. diego cartaya for the yeah. dodgers um francisco alvarez yeah, yeah, Francisco Alvarez, of course, for the Mets. Uh, uh, Logan O'Hoppy. Logan O'Hoppy, yep. Um, I, I guess you could kind of put MJ Melendez in that conversation still, even though he sort of plays the outfield a little right. bit more. Um, the Royals even also Jonah just drafted I mean, Blake Mitchell in the, the top 10. Jonah Heim is like 28. Um, he's, I, I'm not certainly not going to count him as a catching prospect. Um, maybe Austin Wells from the Yankees, but I think he's more of like first baser left field yeah, even at this point seem like he profiles um, but like the point that i'm trying to make is like there are so many top tier catching prospects right now that it, it might be a, like a weird moment for that particular market like if that like became a trend and everybody decided that they wanted to trade their catching prospects like especially after the dodgers did it and got away with it and it worked like i i think there would be so many teams trying to do that that like i don't even know how that would work but i i think it's definitely a very interesting theory and i think that i am usually in support of that like the exceptions being like you said being buster posey and adley rushman um i do think that there if there is a guy being seen as potentially on that tier you do want to keep that guy close and i only say that because i have someone in mind which is ethan solace from the padres yeah. who just signed internationally 17 years old he was 16 playing in spring training they put him right in single a ball crazy talent like if you get somebody like that absolutely keep him because that could be a freak on both sides of the ball um but yeah. i i do think that i'm on board with this idea though of trading catching prospects more often than not yeah because the problem for me when i when i went through this because it's something that's been kicking around in my head for a while ever since i saw patrick bailey take the job that was uh given like anointed to joey bart i feel like when you're a catching prospect and they're drafted highly so often like we just saw the red sox take kyle teal first round and i just feel like people tend to maybe look at the position and ignore say well if this guy plays catcher he's he's great for a catcher but the problem is a lot of the times these guys don't stick a catcher and 
a lot of the times they have to move to the outfield for one reason or another, or they move to first base. I think or, that, or they become the uh, best utility man in uh, all of baseball and right, even pick yes. in IKF. <laughs> exactly. So right. my problem is I just think it's a little bit of a short-sighted way to draft is if you're giving someone extra credit for playing catcher in high school or college. I, because a lot of times those players don't stay at catcher. I don't think you should draft thinking uh, – uh, in regards to positional this scarcity. This is our catcher of the future or something. Especially in a sport like baseball where the draft is a crapshoot anyway. I just don't think it's a good idea to overvalue someone's tools just because they played catcher in the lower leagues. I, I actually – so I, I really like that theory in general. Um, the only thing, like the only hole that I'd poke in it is the fact that catcher is so unique because – you need to know how to play it in order to play it, you know, well at the big league level. Whereas other positions, you see guys slide around. You know, if you're a shortstop, you know you're going to play second or third. You know, at some point. Or so many people are like drafted particularly as shortstops, shortstops and, and centers. Yeah, shortstops, shortstops and center fielders means that you are the best defensive player on your college team or your high school team. And they trust that they can put you anywhere. So, you know, that's why always it's center fielders and shortstops who get drafted. That's why the Yankees draft shortstops every year. Um, you know, no one's drafting first basemen or relievers out of, like, The Angels are. High school. Like, the Angels, yes. Yeah, yeah, the Angels, <laughs> other than them. And the White Sox um, took Andrew Vaughn, like, third overall for some reason. Right, yeah. right, right. Well, um, that, I thought that so, was a good pick at the time. He, he looked like a 40-50 homer guy out of college, and then he just never got to that. I Those agree are also, you, by the way, yeah. exceptions. <laughs> um, yeah, that's the but anyway, um, what I was saying is the the value that a catcher has to be assigned is directly related to the fact that they're like they are probably the most singular players on a baseball field, other than a pitcher. I think like you know you like, or at least highly specialized. Like you can like shortstop is up there. Like it's you know you don't have a lot of guys who can just like oh you know throw him at short he'll be fine or whatever. Um, but catcher especially, like you need to be able to know how to work the pitching staff. And if that's why now, you know, as far as offense is concerned for catchers, it's like, it seems a bonus. So, you know, that is kind of the way that it's been heading for a bit. So uh, I think cool. offensive catchers are obviously very desired. <laughs> so yeah, naturally they get overvalued when you have any kind of, you know, anything that looks like it could be. So that's well, kind of why I was it's... so surprised to see, Kyle Teal fall to number 14 like I thought I mentioned this in my conversation with Nick high. I yeah. thought he should have gone to Kansas City who did take a catcher they took Blake Mitchell who doesn't have in my opinion the upside of Teal or the immediate value um, and they didn't take that money and put it into like second and third round guys that I was particularly high on either. So I, I didn't get that Royals at all. Made a poor personnel <laughs> yeah. Morgan, it, it, it sounded like you had but something things to are say. Things are going so well there. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, the point I was just going to make real quick was that I think there was kind of a canary in the coal mine uh, type incident for this type of thinking. Uh, and maybe that's just me being with a canary in a coal mine is when, um, no, I, I know what I'm saying. Was it Gary? <laughs> yeah, no, it was not. Um, <laughs> What's a canary? I was like, okay. A, a canary is a type of bird. A canary um, is a tropical bird. bird. Small yellow bird. <laughs> Typically uh, so not found say, in a coal mine. 
when when we saw this past oh, week, so it's like when something feels out of place. I got it. I'm with you. All right, this yeah. bit is over. Morgan, continue. <laughs> when we saw this last winter, the Blue Jays no traded Moreno to the Diamondbacks in exchange for um, Dalton Varsho. Varsho, yes, yeah. and they also got Lourdes Gurriel. The Diamondbacks did in that deal, and at the time. We obviously knew the Blue Jays had Kirk and Jansen both hypothetically blocking him. But you would think, wouldn't you, that Moreno, who was, I believe, no one could tell me if I'm wrong, maybe it was Barry. Was he their number one prospect at the time? Was it Tiedman? I think he was. That, um, that feels right. Which I team? Like the, Toronto? Yeah, Toronto. Yeah, yeah. he was, he was yes. their number one like pipeline prospect. I, I, I also follow a bunch of, like, fantasy articles that ranked like Ricky Tiedemann way way higher than him yeah. like I think as players so like Tiedemann is going to be or... much better than Moreno right. but um pipeline there either way yeah yeah right. pipeline so there, really but... valued him as a catcher so I, I think he was their top prospect right and the point that I'm trying to make there is if, if you trade that guy you would think that and Dalton Varsho had a good season and is a very solid player but it was it just at the time people said it seemed like a lot to give up for Varsho and that's what made me kind of wonder if the Blue Jays maybe thought, you know, aside from this glut at, c- at catching that they, we currently have, maybe this guy doesn't project that catcher long term, or maybe we overvalued him slightly because he's a catcher. Because it, do- it did seem like a slightly low return for someone of that value. I, I was surprised. I remember thinking like that, like, whoa, like, all right, that's out of the blue a little bit, you know. Right. I felt I remember thinking the same way about their uh, Teoscar Hernandez trade last offseason as well. I felt yeah. like they had made a couple of weird deals for Eric Swanson, right? Yeah. Yes. Yep. But there's always going to be teams like that, like the Blue Jays, right? And I don't want to get it. We could do a whole podcast on how the Blue Jays run their team and the kind of crackpots <laughs> they acquire to be on that roster. We should but at some point. We absolutely should. But my favorite is Kevin Pilar. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But, you know, there's always going to be teams that have a different strategy than everyone else. Like, I always think of the Rockies. Like, there's an old tweet by um, uh, David Roth, who's really, really funny. He used to write for Deadspin, now writes for Defector, where he said, the Rockies team-building strategy makes a lot more sense if you look at it as they're just trying to find guys they like and hang out with them. And it's true. <laughs> some teams make decisions that Chris don't make any Ryan. sense. And that's what I was saying to the point Nolan was making about how there would be a weird flood on the market if everyone tried to trade their catchers. There's always going to be teams that are one or two steps behind. Like, And the Rockies are a perfect example. I never for the rest of my life will expect the Rockies to be good at anything. No. So yeah. I do think that uh, I basically I've solved uh, Moneyball. Um, I'm <laughs> going to be hired to be the GM. Of, you wear um, many hats, Morgan. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I'm gonna have them in the ALCS within three to five years because of this theory. <laughs> yeah, I, I like. Well, that actually. So, what I was going to tie in earlier when I mentioned um, that kind of leads me to uh, Austin Wells because there's been a lot of chat with him. You know, he's 24, he's in Double A or whatever, and with the rumors of very large names who may potentially enter the trade market ahead of the deadline. What uh, what are some big names you guys see on the move and for what kind of deals? What are we thinking? Oh, dude, geez, do we want to open that can of worms? Maybe maybe we could just hit on like the big ones. Like Otani, Soto, are they moving? Arenado, is he going anywhere? Um, Cardinals, Cardinals are going to sell. Yeah. What do you see going on with that? A yeah. couple minutes, yeah. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah. Um, I think... 
I don't see Otani being traded because while I think that they should trade him by all accounts, it would be the best move for their clearly doomed and cursed franchise. I don't think that's the right word. Yeah. I don't think that they want to be the type of organization that trades Shohei Otani. Like, I don't think they want to take that massive damage to their not only national, but global reputation. Um, right. And also, You're like, right. it's so much I, better for them to be the team with both of the most talented baseball players on the planet, and no, never but, make but Brody, <laughs> even so, though their their failure has like turned into a bit at this point. Right. Yes. Yeah, no, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. But no, you're good. Like, I, I was just gonna make a point that at I believe it was the 2018 deadline. Mike Rizzo, the GM of the Nationals, had Bryce Harper traded to the Astros. The deal was done. It was in place. And the owner of the Nationals nixed it because he didn't want his team to be seen as giving up Bryce Harper because right. for a number of reasons. Number one, it does kind of make you look like a loser organization when yes. flagship player gets traded. Number two, that guy's a gate attraction. He gets people to the park. Uh, and number three, it really kills fan morale. So, like, they're selling, and then they're selling someone like that. And, you know, and, yes. and I think that's the point Nolan's trying to make, which is – you don't want to be seen as it's a, a, I mean, that yeah. had this guy and got rid of him to for a few prospects that likely, you know, based on prospects, will probably not turn into anything. Yeah. I was listening to the case show today. They brought up Ken Griffey Jr. leaving Seattle for Cincinnati. I mean, that, like, has probably stuck with those fans for, what, I, two decades? <laughs> like, I mean. I think so. Um, yeah. It's a... It's a, a stink that's hard to get off once you do something like that. But at I the was same time, say, yeah. if you're going to yeah. be logical well, about it, the Angels are not re-signing him. So, you know. Certainly. They, um, they, yeah. I think the fans would have to understand. You can't let him leave for the uh, you know a late second round pick in return. Yeah. What I was going to say is, like, I don't even know what a... hypothetical Otani trade looks like. Like, I don't know what team has the farm system for this, probably Baltimore, but they're not going to do that. Um, The factor that make any sense is it's two, it's two months. Yeah, true. But like, even for, even that, for that player, like the public relations aspect that comes into it at that point is going to be crazy. And like, I don't know if there's going to be any deal that could balance making that worth it for the angels and would also make it worth it for the team that was acquiring hypothetically two months of Otani, like especially (laughs) in this scenario, the team that's acquiring him is probably, you know, a quote win now team, which means you're not going to trade your MLB talent, which means that you're going to empty the farm system entirely pretty much who even has that farm system. Like there was a report today. Buster only said that he expects the Yankees Yankees. to be heavily in on, on acquiring Shohei Otani. And I'm like, okay, I'm I'm also heavily in on acquiring Emily Ratajkowski. Like it's right. not going to fucking happen. Um, yeah. I'm taking. Who would they even move for him? Would it me. wouldn't make sense. Me and Brody no, had this argument it's nonsense. earlier. It wouldn't make sense. I Brody thinks that it would, and I don't think it would because I just think that if you acquire Otani to this team as a rental. What are you accomplishing? This team is less talented than the Angels in many aspects. Yes, like, I don't think completely agree. No, I don't think is. that's true. The rotation is a million times better than the Angels' rotation. Oh, don't get me started. We no, don't need not. to. We'll let 
Brody's Probably just anyway. opening cans of worms yeah, and letting them fly all, all over the room. Here. We, we gotta um, wrap this up. We yeah, had a two-hour uh, no, episode. Saying, <laughs> yeah, I'm saying, like, and this will be my last point on this, is I just think that it doesn't make sense. Like, it would be great. I would love to see Otani in a Yankee uniform. But if you're acquiring him as a rental, that means you think you're one Shohei Otani from the World Series. I just think that that just makes the I, – I tweeted this. That makes the Yankees the East Coast Angels, but worse. Exactly. They're going to have a bunch of guys – who can't hit, and then Otani in the number two hole. And it would be awesome because, obviously, the Angels don't have a pitcher like Cole. You could give the Yankees that. And they don't yeah. have a player like Judd. Well, they have Trout. Well, but yes, they have two of them. <laughs> and so is Judge. Never mind. I'm talking in circles now. But <laughs> I just don't think that would put them over the top. And I don't think that I, – I don't want a prospect hug, but I just don't think that that deal makes sense for the Yankees at the deadline. I think that the Yankees, if anything, need to be – focusing on operating somewhat around the margins because they've given away a few players in the past few years that have really annoyed me. And uh, I don't want to see that happen again for yeah. a team that I don't think it's possible for them to win the world series, barring some kind of Braves miracle run. I completely and agree. I, and I don't want to turn this into just like, you know, the Yankee episode, but the thing is the Yankees are in a very interesting, inherently interesting spot. Yeah. Just at, like from a baseball standpoint, this is like the weirdest situation that i can remember uh the yankees what being other standpoint in, uh, would it be from like what do you mean? <laughs> he said from a baseball standpoint no 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 no. i'm saying like from uh you know i'm saying not as like from a fan standpoint i'm saying from a baseball standpoint like a general standpoint not like the uh like not not looking at it from just like you know a diehard fan but like in terms of the whole league the yankees need to make a lot of moves and they are you know historically willing to do so. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We'll see if um, it turns into what we want it to. But um, the, what I was also going to say is with Otani, I, like, if you knew for a fact that he was going to re-sign, there's another layer to it, which is what, or uh, not re-sign, excuse me. Um, or yeah, re-sign. Like, if you trade for him, you know he's going to re-sign. Um, then it no. might be worth emptying a farm team, but he would be an idiot to do that because he's going to make the most money of anybody ever. Six hundred million. Um, yes, and I I think that at that point too, if you are a big market team like the Dodgers or the Yankees or uh, yeah, I don't know, but maybe uh, team the Cubs even or the Cardinal teams with a lot of money who are needing to spend it, that you might as well just go after him in November. It, like there's no reason to empty out your team when he's going to be on the market in what four months so right yeah yeah it doesn't make sense i think we are all completely in agreement there we totally have to wrap this up though we got a yes very (laughs) long episode for the people uh morgan thank you so much for being here it's been been a great time talking to you like always um we'll hope to have you back soon I also want to give a uh, thanks to Nick Chalmers from Prospect Sauce, who was on the first half of this episode. He's been on here a million times. He's been on here three times, yeah, and Morgan twice. So we're starting to get a bit of a leaderboard on the Mudville podcast. And and Yeah, and and, yeah, I'd love to come back. And uh, I do want to do a deep dive into the Blue Jays with you guys because I think that would be really fun. That would be very fun. We totally need to do that. (laughs) <laughs> um, so that's a fun little preview for the listeners out there. If you made it this far, thank you so much. If you haven't already, please give us a uh, five-star 
rating and review on Spotify or Apple or wherever it is you listen to podcasts. Morgan, do you have anything to plug anywhere that people can find you? Uh, yeah, you could follow me on Twitter at Morg of the Flies, like the book Lore of the Flies, but Morg and Morg. up there among my favorite Twitter handles. That's a good yeah, one. Yeah, it's not bad, right? I'm, I'm mostly uh, tweeting death threats of Brian Cashman these days. Um, <laughs> and, you know, in, Aren't until, we all? until I see the, uh, a team that uh, I feel uh, deserves my attention, uh, I'll, be, I'll, I'll continue watching every night. I'll keep drinking that garbage, but... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, uh, catch my Yankee tweets there. Love it. Same well, with uh, me and Nolan, pretty much, at uh, our respective handles, which is BoardGuy23, B-O-R-D-G-U-Y-2-3, and Nolan's. Stuck in the coil. You can also find us on Blue Sky at Nolan R and Brody S. Um, yeah. Morgan, yep. did you make your Blue Sky? Oh, yep, yeah, yep, he same. did. Where can you yes, find Morgan on Blue Sky? Same handle on Blue Sky. Morgan the Flies. Morgan nice. the Flies. Or the future. Lame. It's been good. I appreciate you, boys. We appreciate Love you, time. too. It's been a good one. See you later, everybody. Mm-hmm.